0: Hello.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: How was your weekend?
1: Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. Just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All pray to whoever logs it works. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? You gotta do it. Um.
0: <laughs> you know, it's like I told somebody the other day they were doing a service, Like, are there any movie quotes that impacted your life that you live by? I'm like, yeah, Conan, and I, if, which is true anyway. But I've mentioned specifically the scene where he's praying the promises. Oh, you know, help me tomorrow if you're listening, whatever. And if you don't, then to hell with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yep, that's me. That's <laughs> so there you go. Well, yeah. Anyway, okay, let's go. to weird scenes inside the gold mine your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment tonight eddie romero and the horror of the philippines on the big papa online network on Block talk radio So, good evening and welcome to the fourth fourth show show. in the sixth season of Weird Seasons Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Tonight... If you're going to discuss Sam Sherman in American International Pictures, Roger Corman in Hemisphere Pictures, there's simply no way you can avoid discussion of the cult cinema of the Philippines. While other directors like Sirio S. Santiago would carry the nation's co-productions into a plethora of an increasingly pointless look-alike Vietnam War pictures throughout the 80s, what will immediately spring to mind for most film aficionados are the weird, almost 50-style rubber monster pictures that kicked off the genre, the Blood Island Trilogy. Preceded by the moodily incestuous family dramas, come Hammer-style horrors of frequent co-director Gerardo de Leon. Things like Terror as a Man, Blood of the Vampires, and the Blood Drinkers. Romero would continue on to both high points like the surprisingly metaphysical Beast of the Yellow Night, and lows like the Twilight People and Savage Sisters, before making way for even more entertaining Filipino productions to take center stage like the quirky Donald Pleasant's vehicle Night Creature, the Corman Blaxploitation crossover Night of the Cobra Woman, the crazed action spy effort Wonder Woman, they call her Cleopatra Wong, and for your height only, and the dark occultism of the Tom Selleck Daughters of Satan, and the absolutely unbelievable Killing of Satan. So, join us tonight as we discuss Eddie Romero, Gerardo De Leon, and the Horror and Cult cinema of the Philippines, only here on Weird Scenes. So, again, like I said, I am Doc Savage. With me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Say hi, Lewis. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hope everybody's doing well tonight. So, um, you're welcome to jump in anytime you want if you've got any background, but if we're going to talk Eddie Romero, we kind of first have to talk the man who his first few films were co directed with, or ostensibly co directed with, namely Gerardo De Leon. He was a former actor-turned-filmmaker and apparently highly respected in his home country, which, honestly, you'd never be able to suss out by the films we're talking today. You know, seriously, we're talking about soapy, incestuous family melodramas with horrific trappings. That was kind of his forte.
1: Oh, yeah. Gerardo de Leon, or Jerry de Leon. Born 1930. Uh, he passed away rather young, I guess you would say, 67, in 1981. He is the most awarded film director in the history of the Filipino Academy of Arts and Sciences. This guy's filmography goes all the way, as a director, all the way back to 1940. He did do one of the early versions of, or adaptations of... Uh, Dr. Moreau? Just, yes, thank you. The H.G. Wells uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, Terrorism Man, but already falling... Matinee idol Francis Letterer. It's an unusual movie, and he also did before he did the Blood Island movies. He also did two really unusual vampire films: The so Blood
0: Drinkers and Blood of the Vampires, or also known as Curse of the Vampires. Like I said, you'd never be able to suspect this guy had any respect based on the films that we were going to be talking about here, uh, True. because. Seriously, we're talking about soapy, incestuous family melodramas with horrific trappings. That's his forte. And it starts off with the rather sleepy Terrorism Man with, as you mentioned, Francis Later of the Louise Brooks film Pandora's Box, of all things, and the goofy mid-40s British attempt at universal horror, The Return of Dracula. Remember that one where the werewolf talked? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's enough jungle film atmosphere to suffice, but it's pretty damn dull for a cheap knockoff of The Island of Dr. Moreau, something that co-director Eddie Romero would do again to similar poor effects years later. There's a long, long wait to any measure of a payoff. But the only good thing you could say about this one, it was probably the first horror film ever lensed in the Philippines, but you know, not exactly an auspicious start. So what do you want to say about this one?
1: Well, they're making historical films and dramas and movies that played on the... Uh, Filipino pride, you know, they were invaded by the Spanish, the Japanese, and the Americans. Yes. Hence, (laughs) I'm trying to do this without so much historical context and stuff, but hence, why everybody has Spanish names, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And hence, why culturally and genetically, the people...
0: Look Asian, but not. Yeah. Y'all, it's, it's sort of Asian and sort of it, something else, and they basically come off as a, quote, Spanish culture, if you know, like, Central American, South American cultures. True. Uh, the, very the strange hybrid.
1: And the money's still pesos, too, after all these years. So yeah. that's, that's another thing, yeah. So, yeah, terrorism, man, I, I, I agree with you. It's. Uh, An odd title, maybe overly talky. The leading man in that is uh, Richard Durr, I believe. I think so, yeah. Who I did like in the... They tried to reboot The Shadow. Do you remember that? Uh, The Invisible... Oh, those ones in the 40s? The 60s? Yeah, but this was a later one. This was a later one. It was only an hour like they intended it for TV and it didn't quite work. I liked him in that. He did a couple other... He was sort... Who did he look like? A cross between Alan Ladd and Gary Cooper handsome matinee idol but he was a guy that just couldn't break you know into the stardom but yeah he was a leading man that's yeah it's talky it's atmospheric but it would be a couple of years before there would be another kind of horror film so yes. that wasn't the 4K at that point
0: for the audiences you know that wasn't the draw let's say and also, just jumping back slightly, I don't know how it impacts the history of the Philippines prior, considering, like you mentioned, they had invasions by several countries. Mm. And they were occupied for quite some time. And even now, I think they're still serving sort of a U.S. military base, aren't they? Like, you know, with Guam and things like that. Don't we still have one down in the Philippines?
1: There is, hence the problems of Philippines really last year, the year before, when a, uh, a Marine murdered a uh, transgender uh, woman that he went out with, and he, he killed her, and, you know, yeah. the U- U.S. was reluctant to hand him over, but, you know, so, yeah, there, we're still there, I'm not sure what's going on, I want to be cautious talking about Duterte, I, he's a crazy guy,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: he's a, he's a crazy guy, I know more about this stuff than you do, because I watch the Filipino TV stations, and uh, the stuff is poured over into Yahoo News, too, nowadays, um. Uh, Drugs currently Last you know, decade Two decades got out of hand Especially meth It's the easiest drug to make there right. cheap, And uh, it's getting way out of hand So his whole thing was I will get rid of drugs Except they're killing the drug users As well as drug dealers mm-hmm. And they kind of They kind of convinced locals Well if you kill these people too
0: That's a oh, good geez. thing Wow, so
1: now there are bodies in the streets. That's like typical Where, dictatorship, right?
0: fascists, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> holy shit. So now you you have what, what what I would say is like a leftist regime. This is what happened in the days of Marcos. Charles. Yes. I was going to mention Marcos. That was the next one. That I don't know how the other stuff impacted it, but Marcos was president. He was one of those president for life jobs, and he was there for years. I mean, all through the 70s and the 80s, I think maybe even beyond. And it was kind of horrifying because you know even beyond everything else just the sheer waste that went on i mean this guy was stinking rich off the people who were living in absolute impoverishment uh you know people walking around in like the equivalent of jody's and you know pushing rickshaws and living in dirt huts where whereas this guy here his wife had like closets and closets full of freaking you know gucci shoes and things like that <laughs> just left behind when they basically got railroaded out of the country. Uh, uh, but- but the thing about Marcos is he loved the movies. He loved the movies so much it.
1: that when he campaigned, he had a documentary film financed, riding the horses and you know, leading the people into battle. And so that he was not doing well in the polls on that basis of that movie. Suddenly he vaulted into a higher end. Mm-hmm. And so once he was in by the, uh, let's say, the late 60s through to the early 80s, Imelda His wife Who was so much Into See me feel me That whole star trip mm-hmm. She commissioned This like Almost on the level Of the Greek pantheon This huge building Which would be The Filipino Arts Academy Which took them Years and years To make Because of the money mm-hmm. You know still, it Still was tough yeah. And they had They invited Stars from All around the world To attend Film openings They had their own Mini cons there You know and uh, they tried uh, for years. I have to, I do have to say, for years, Filipino action films and horror movies and sci-fi movies sold really well in the international market. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of action pictures aping Bruce Lee. A lot of the stars found, like, resurgence. But then, boom, it dried up because the Europeans came over, the Italians specifically. And they yes. made the movies a lot cheaper. And suddenly, everybody thought with the birth of VHS... The market would explode even bigger. But you know what? It was just <sighs> crazy, crazy, and uh, they were, it bottomed out. Yep. Except for, as you mentioned earlier, and then we'll get, we'll get into one of these guys. As you mentioned earlier, Serio H. Santiago, who uh, did make a few horror films, nothing really of note, but his big thing, actually, you mentioned the Vietnam pictures, but his big thing was the uh, Mad Max Republicans. Wheels of Fire, I think it's his, and this, I don't know. Oh, Equal was at 2,000. Yeah, so many. those is Aftermath, I don't know. And, you know, some of them are really fun. And also, some of them, I have to say, are a little disturbing in the um, brutality. You know, because, like, who's monitoring this stuff? Yeah, I'm not saying so much uh, anything about animal stuff. There's very little. You know, we have futuristic cars. We're out in the deserts there. They're shooting in the wilds of the Philippines. And it's just like when I say who's monitoring these things, You know, the homoerotic subtexts that are in these some of these Mad Max kind of things are pushed way, way far. And so oh, this. yeah. <laughs> and the brutality against women. These things would not play well today. And actually, George Miller's excellent. Excellent. If Lord Fury wrote, probably couldn't get made today, even though Charlize Theron was the de facto star of that movie, and it's probably one of the best action movies. Period. Not the best, but one of the best. And that's a big, that's a big uh, basket there. I don't think that could get made today with with uh, what's going on in that picture with the female characters. Yeah. Be that as it may, I, I do want to add this point is that the Philippines also only has a few good seasons a year. From our our summer, is there a rainy season? By rainy season, I mean monsoons, typhoons, yep. hurricanes. Uh, my wife went down last Sunday, and I could barely hear her, a messenger, because all I hear is, <laughs> and she goes, it's rainy here. I'm like, no shit.
0: It's um, one of those countries like Thailand or um, Taiwan even, where when it does have a rainy thing, sometimes it's almost like a flash flood, and houses wash away and there's mass deaths and everything else. And then a couple of seconds later, it's within like you know 25 minutes, an hour, it's dry and hot. <laughs> it's like nothing oh, yeah. happened.
1: <laughs> well, don't forget, I was down there. I, I was down there uh, two or three years ago, maybe two years ago. And it's extremely hot. yeah. <laughs> It's extremely humid. You have not experienced it. I've been to, you know, I've been to California. California's to, more dry heat, yeah. It's dry heat, yeah, but you get a heat wave. It's hot. But New York seems to be like the Philippines so much this summer. This is a bitch of a summer. It is a hell of a
0: summer. This reminds me of Florida, because Florida was always hellish. like Oh, that.
1: right, yeah, Florida, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I always go down there to spend a day before for the, when I go to the cruise, and... Uh, the uh, Prague Rock Cruise, and it's like, wow, it's hot, you know. And I go in February, <laughs> so it's snowing, <laughs> it's snowing in Newark Airport, and you think, damn, I hope my plane's not delayed. And then you land, and it's like, eighty-two
0: and ninety-seven percent humidity. It's like, hot. Oh, yep. you know? <laughs> um, Alligators, uh, snakes, timeshares, bunch of hucksters, Disney zombies, like the people that live in Celebration, USA, where you know, if you can't. Uh, uh, Stand out otherwise they kick you out of the town for those kind of weird things.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Florida's yeah, yeah. a
0: strange fucking state, man. No way. Never go back there again. Well before I did this huge digression,
1: and folks, please please allow me What I'm trying to say, they do have a particular window to shoot these things in. So mm-hmm. it's like once that rainy season hits, it's bang. Yep. You can't you can't do anything. You know, really. Uh, unless you're making an apocalyptic like I don't know water world <laughs> yeah an apocalyptic water world type of thing um, thank you uh yes and they're not gonna shoot during the Christmas celebration oh no
0: the're very religious. The longest, yeah the longest in the world and we'll we'll get to some of that religious stuff All so, right, um, so five years it takes them to make another one of these. I mean, he may have done some other films in between, you know, this normal stuff that nobody really cares about in this country, but which he's probably celebrated for over there. He does Blood is the Color of Night, among which many retitlings is The Blood Drinkers, Mm -hmm. which some quarters hail as some kind of unheralded masterpiece and more as the first color film lens in the Philippines, which it sort of is and sort of isn't. Like Al Adamson or Coffin Joe, one can only assume this was an impoverished production making use of short ends, or that the bulk of the film was actually recorded in black and white and then tinted into shades of red, blue, and sepia in post-production. There are a few obvious color sequences, and it's actually those that work to any degree whatsoever. The rest is distracting, and combined with the sheer boredom of the film itself and this cheesy pit bull wannabe of a bald Sunglasses bedecked Spanish vampire Makes it really kind of painful to sit through I don't understand why people love it so much So what's your take on this? Oh I
1: saw this I I like it a lot more than you I'm gathering from what you just said But it's not a great film by far But that being said It's certainly Growing up this is one of those pictures They used to show On either Chiller Theater or Creature Features The New York area Local horror hostings and, yeah, it was tinted. I was like, what the hell? I wasn't sure if it was black and white or not, but apparently they, the tinting was in, intentional. The the main vampire, Dr. Marco, Ronald Remy, who, as far as I can tell through research, was a fairly good-looking guy. That, you know, he, he appeared bold in this, in this film. And, you know, it's kind of weird. It's it's a very strange movie. I, I would love to see it. Uh, I haven't seen it in years, but I have very strong Memories of it. This guy, you know, appears, uh, he Kate, the whole trapping, except he's a bald vampire. Almost, uh, what was that Uli Lomel film, Tenderness of the Wolves? About oh, yeah. yeah. He sort of resembled that, but as a vampire. And, you know, he had this older woman, his mother or something, a hunchback. Yep. Uh, a dwarf.
0: A voluptuous companion. Uh... It all sounds great in pieces, but then you're sitting there and you're watching, it's like, what's Pitbull doing this terrible movie? It's, <laughs> <laughs> this is really bad. Well, it should also, work, but it doesn't.
1: Yeah, well, he also is dragging around this coffin. So, who's in the coffin but Amelia Fuentes, who, to quote Andrew Liebold, my friend, made the, the Wang Wang documentary? He called her the Elizabeth Taylor of the Philippines, but she doesn't have Taylor's unearthly serenity, mm-hmm. but does possess an intriguing Spanish flavor. Yeah, she's full lip, pouty, bosoming not a common thing, but with the starlets it was and it is. So for some reason you're, you're watching a movie, it's like sea blue. Hey, it's pink, it's red, yep. it's green, it's,
0: it's, sepia. it's green,
1: <laughs> it's sepia, it's
0: dark blue, and, and, and all these kind of. And there's no um, reason for it. It just flips, which is, makes me think that it was either tinted strangely or he's using short ends. No, nah, it, it, apparently it was done on purpose, artistic he says. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> apparently, um, also, it was done by a really decent cinematographer in the Philippines who also directed a lot of Jerry's earlier dramas and other films. This guy was an award-winning cinematographer. There. You know, before uh, Imelda came in and wanted to make Philippines the Asian Hollywood, mm-hmm. there was respect to filmmakers. Uh, yeah, know, same thing with Eddie Romero, once we get to Eddie. You know, once Eddie's forte with horror and this kind of stuff was done. He spent, you know, 30 years more going back things, and he was still winning Best Director Award. So, you know, very strange. But, I guess what he want to say in summation, it, it's a weird film. I think it should be experience. Is it great? No, it's, it's worth an experience. So, I, I think it's probably out of print now, though. Sam Sherman put out this blood collection. Anything he bought from the Philippines was a blood collection. Yes. It's not really part of the Blood Island trilogy. The Blood Island. Right, exactly. And it's worth seeing. You could probably get on eBay or someplace like that for a cheap price. Please stay away from, I heard there's some, like a made to See or somebody's been fooling around with, like, sub-quality. If you can get, like, the blood collection, actually, it's probably five or six bucks. It's worth seeing. I, I, I'd recommend it on
0: that alone. Historical value, let's say. So, do you think you mentioned about how uh, the Philippine starlets tend to be bosomy and voluptuous, whereas Philippine women are more, eh, not always, but I mean, I know the one girlfriend I had that was Philippine, and a lot of ones that I see around here tend to be more like you know the Asian model, where they're more slim and attractive as opposed to being voluptuous and zaftig. Do you think that's kind of like what goes on with Japan, where an inordinate proportion of the musicians and starlets and people that are in the media Tend mm. to be dark skinned. Uh, they, they actually get them from Okinawa, things like that, or half breeds, you know, like, oh, they're half something, half Korean, half American, half whatever. They pick the ones that stand out as opposed to, you know, here's an everyday Japanese person from Hokkaido or whatever. Do you think that's what that is?
1: Well, I think in these, these early pictures we're discussing, I think they were going for the exotic look, and uh, Amelia Fuentes, who I name checked before, was, and she appears in the next picture I think we're going to discuss, was definitely an epitome of that. She was very Spanish-looking. You know, I don't want to say hybrid, but yeah. You know. Well, here's the thing, though. I watch, don't laugh at me, I watch game shows. <laughs> I used to I love watch, game shows. <laughs> I watch Filipino game shows, my friend. Wow. And and I know my wife is never going to listen to this, but some of my, my, my Filipino friends might, so you guys can comment on this. Date. The world has changed. The Filipino game shows now have these... Chunky, camel toe bearing, bosomy girls behind the host. And they, they can't fucking dance much less walk. Like, <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> Then they got these freakishly transgender people. You know what? I got to say, for, for as Catholic a country it is, there are transgender people hosting shows, co-hosting shows. Mm-hmm. Vince Ganda, Google her, Vince Ganda is the most popular
0: transgender person, person outside of America. It's amazing. I know that Thailand is famous for its ladyboys, and I know I had seen, I was watching, I'm a big fan of Jessica Kudo. And I was watching one interview she did where she was trying not to laugh the whole time with a Taiwanese fellow who was, you know, again, a transgender, trying to talk to her, like, yeah, you know, dressed up in full gear, like you know, RuPaul or whatever the hell, talking to her with a voice like this, and she's like trying not to snicker. But I'm amazed. And so the Philippines have really turned into a big hotbed oh, yeah. for that, eh? Yeah, but you know what? It's acceptance, which is alternately shocking.
1: And something else to me, sometimes I can't put my finger. I It's like... Yeah, you know, I, I probably will because, you know, I'm, I'm so tempted to watch these things. You know, like, the one show is like a variety show. And, you know, so here's the thing, too. Filipino variety shows, their music is always 10 to 15 years back in, in terms of popularity. So things they cover is like what was popular here 10 to 15 years ago. I don't <laughs> ask me why. You know, I really don't know. It's probably why when you go do karaoke with Filipinos, it's like, Backstreet Boys, <laughs> Frank Sinatra, Backstreet Boys, so now the, they're entering the hip-hop phase. Okay. And so, uh, which we, we, yeah, I know, right? It's already passe here. And the the same show. Damn, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna kick myself for forgetting. I see it so often. And not only has a transgender co-host, which is Vice Gander, who I mentioned, she's on most of the time, but they have a segment of the show where they have transgender beauty queens. <laughs> We'll get to sing a song or show a talent, and you know, they wear gowns, and, and it, but it's not like the ladyboy thing at all. Uh, uh, they probably would be insulted if somebody... I mean, some of them like, wow, she looks great. Oh, wow, she's pulling it off. <laughs> and then some of them, like, no teeth, meth addict looking, like... <laughs> or, you know, there's, there's somebody who's like 250 pounds, you shouldn't be wearing a gown. <laughs> but... Yo, know, but again, it's an accepting culture and it's it's just a thing that's that's gone on there much to my surprise. So
0: we segue again into Blood of the Vampires. Yes. Blood of the Vampires and I was gonna say about this compared to the last one, at least Blood of the Vampires, also known as Whisper to the Wind, also known as Curse of the Vampires, among twenty other titles, is colorful with nice sets, foggy atmosphere, gel lighting, and a night hammer horror vibe, complete with plenty of attention to costumery. Okay, so far so good. The problem is, once again, the undue focus on family troubles, this time a family with a big secret that the mother locked away Jane Eyre style and only let out at night to feed is a vampire and the husband is afraid that this is some kind of a curse that gets passed down genetically. There's a whole lot of hand wringing and it's pretty fucking boring, sadly, as the film at least looks great, unlike the last one. So uh, what's your take on that? I did I did prefer the last one, which is which is covered. Amelia
1: Puentes is back in this as a vampire. Well, no, she's the vampire's daughter, but it gets complicated. Eddie Garcia, who the big star of this thing, he was like the big cowboy movies, were also very big there, westerns. And so, this guy's he was like he would make 14 pictures a year, that big. I think somebody was one time working on the Eddie Garcia story or the Fernando Poe Jr. Story. Another big famous guy, famous actor. These guys would churn out by the time the career was done or they passed away, like 300 movies. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. How can you do that? I mean, just we right, were used to. He's insane. But Eddie Garcia was very well known as this handsome, bon, we kind of guy do the kissy face movies, romantic comedies, you know, the Western ride, the horse, save the town. You know, and so he does this as a one-off. And so I, I don't think it did really well there. So that's the thing with these two pictures. They were good sellers to the overseas market, i.e. here and the other Western markets, maybe the uh, UK, uh, France, Germany, inspired by Hammer, yes, definitely. obviously, by the look and feel. But I would have to hazard a guess, again, if someone you know, thinks I'm wrong, that they probably didn't do too well there. Because while this one's less... Sexy than the other one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we're talking 66, 70, you know, for both these pictures. No, 66, 68, around there. They are not. When I say sexy, I mean like, I think this one has more diaphanous gowns. The other one did as well, but because they're color tinting, you couldn't make a break <laughs> figure out what's going on. But, did these two pictures also, there are slow, elegic moments in them? And were these possibly. Influences
0: on Jean Valin—that's something to think about. It's arguable. I mean, I don't agree, but I could see the that there was a possibility of uh, influence. Possibility. There, yeah.
1: The other thing, the strong
0: family values—that's a, that's a Filipino trademark. Yeah, yeah. without a doubt. So from here on out, De Leon would join forces with Romero on the infamous Blood Island Trilogy before fading more or less into obscurity, but Romero's touch would come to predominate, leaving those films a very different matter than the three snooze fests that came before under the De Leon name. For the first one, I said, From Hell It Came With Tits. with a soapy yet cheesy look and a feel much akin to farter exploiters like Zat, Sting of Death or an Al Adamson flick maybe Brides of Blood works in the cheesy creature feature vibe that was just kind of fading at the dawn of the 60s Uh, you can also say Larry Buchanan maybe with the more lurid sexed up flavor of an Emilio Vieira film we touched on those when we did our Coffin Joe show or Maneater of Hydra. one of the Italian uh, same kind of idea with an obnoxious truck stop waitress style blonde Beverly Powers. Check out that Marge Simpson by way of the B-52's hairdo she's rocking. Openly taunting and cuckolding her grumpy, geriatric husband, 30s B-movie actor Kent Taylor, who's old enough to be her father, and she <laughs> looks early 40s herself, mind, so I can picture how old this guy is. And the pool boy, I mean, first mate John Ashley, a laid-back, sub-Elvis rockabilly star along the lines of early Ricky Nelson, they set out to a nearby island to investigate mutations of the local sea life by atomic testing during World War II. They're greeted by a small group of natives who return to their savage ways, sacrificing their own to an angry tree god who only recently appeared, thus the From Hell It Came reference. They wind up staying with the local Dr. Moreau, a slick Desi or Naz type named Esteban, his staff of midgets, and his weird manservant with a messed up eye. He's pulling a Ponce de Leon, but at the cost of becoming a monster, uh, well, actually a hilarious totem pole face, which means that our horny housewife there is shit out of luck. Lucky, if you're all concerned, Ashley, who become a regular in Filipino horror and Romero films in particular, has the hots for a mediocre looking local girl, so he'll be sure to save the day in the end, capping things off with a fully clothed strip show All of the solid gold dancers that breaks into a fully clothed orgy. Filled with weird, sweaty atmosphere, particularly for a film of its vintage, a surprising degree of TNA, and a lot of no-budget, tentacle plan action, there's a strange mix of 50s monster kid innocence, and a more late 60s, early 70s move towards the open sexuality and depravity of the exploit patient film, and some scenes like the one where the natives turn out to fight the killer tree by night are memorably hallucinatory if not nightmarishly nice, or naric. Not the best of what would become the Blood Trilogy, but a damn good start. Well, Eddie Romero, who teamed
1: up with DeLeon on this, sort of co-directors, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I did watch the extras of one of Sam Sherman's DVDs. It's a lot of good Eddie Romero stuff. He, he looks pretty sharp for his age. Well, Eddie... Was already had one best director 1951, best director 1966, 68. I mean, this is like so. This is the pedigree, best screenplay two years in a row, 1952. So, you know, this is a an auteur, yeah. You know, this is definitely somebody who's made films, been respected over there, and so. I guess at this point after the two films we just discussed, there's the possibility that more money can be made and more money will be coming made. John Ashley, former uh, pal of Frankie Avalon, former husband of Deborah Wally, another Frankie Avalon cohort, Beach Party Movies, goes to the Philippines allegedly to, to recuperate from Deborah Wally or maybe escape from some Hollywood brouhaha, who knows. Anything's possible, right? This is, yeah, Tree Monsters, Monsters. Uh, I have a said so Frankie. John Ashley playing Frankie. John Ashley as Frankie Avalon, playing <laughs> uh, Jim Farrell, Peace Corps representative, who tags along with these people. Now, Beverly Powers is actually credited on some of these prints as Beverly Hills, which is a fucking laugh as itself. Yes. I remember seeing that Beverly Hills. Like, yeah. name. <laughs> I'm like, who the hell is that? And then we find out it's Beverly Pills. And it's like, who the hell is that? So I, I thought it was I'm a joke about her it, having big boobs <laughs> It could have been Or or I, I still don't know who Beverly Powers is And I know I didn't investigate it further But when I saw Beverly Hills The first thing that came to my mind Was like, okay, somebody banged a big busted stripper And yep. said, hey, let's go to the Philippines And you're going to be in this picture <laughs> uh, I, Where did we get to the next one? But, uh it's weird, and I don't know if this kind of thing appeared. Again, very Catholic country. I don't know if this kind of thing appeared before, but it's the first early, and you're going to see more of this in the other Blood Island pictures. The, yes. the first, you know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. The first time you see lots of nudity and yes. fragrant, and they're not calling about it, and they're not, it's almost like a exploitation film you know, from Asia. Like Some of those Chinese, early Chinese uh, Category 3, Category, well, no, earlier than that. The, the, like, uh, the 13 nuns and some of the earlier pictures from the, I guess, the mid-70s, before we got to Category 3 movies,
0: played with this a little bit, but weren't as oh, yeah. far out The Oily Monster, but, or uh, who was the one that oil, did the documentary? Uh, Betty Pink Tay, every time she shows up in something? Right, uh,
1: right. So, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, these things existed. We didn't see them as much. I'm sure there's probably more out there than we knew of. But from the Philippines, again, you know... Uh, Catholic country this was really interesting and probably there's a cheese level that's fun from hell it came, yeah it could be name checked bosomy American starlet in quotations like who the hell is she where is she go after this but it's fun on its own without getting too much into it one note I saw this on Wikipedia it's only made for $75,000 and they kept running out of money <laughs> <laughs> so uh, since John Ashley got along really well with the people there. He just said, you know what? I won't leave. I'll stay in Manila. But I ain't working. So when you get some more money, I'll go back to the production. So they would get some more money, and John would go back to film. And so the four-week production took 11 weeks,
0: which is like, wow. But uh, it's a fun
1: picture nonetheless, I think.
0: Yeah, and I'll actually amend my earlier statement. I wrote these, obviously, as notes as I was watching the movies, and I remembered other ones being better, but having re-seen them all of the, the Blood trilogy per se, there was a better film that Romero did, I actually think it was my favorite of them. Now, is it the best? That's up to you, but I definitely liked it the best. And in terms of John Ashley... It's weird because he actually does nothing in this. He's always a bit wooden. I don't know if you ever heard his rockabilly albums. I have some of that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's ac- it's amusing. I mean, it's like Ricky Nelson. Like I said, it's not really. You're not talking Carl Perkins. You're not talking Wanda Jackson. You're not talking Hazel conceiving Even or something crazy like that. The Cramps. You are talking very straightforward, straight laced version of rockabilly. Not even as crazy as early Elvis, like the Sun Sessions, but along those lines. You know, a little more clean cut. Not bad. But he comes in here, and he's very stiff and doesn't seem to get a lot to do. Most of John Ashley's scenes in this film are just kind of standing there staring at things happening, even when people are being attacked by plants, when there's, like, cloth orgies going on. You know, whatever it is, he just kind of stands there and looks at them, like, kind of perplexed. Very strange uh, film in that respect. But I did hear, and I don't know if it's true or not, because, you know, you never know what stuff you get off the Internet... But that he was actually down there in the first place, as you mentioned, trying to get away from his... He had recently divorced, uh, I think it was Deborah Wally. Uh, So he was just trying to get the hell away from the whole situation. Just on top of your comment earlier. So... Things get more gimmicky with the next film, which is Mad Doctor of Blood Island. It Mm -hmm. kicks off with the infamous William Castle-style Oath of Green Blood, which (laughs) theater patrons were encouraged to ingest prior to the film. It opens on a pudgy, naked Filipina being chased by a low-ranked creature from the Black Ragoon, and what would become Romero's most annoying signature. Thankfully, he does not use it as much as he's reputed to kind of like you want just Franco and I said yeah. oh god you know he always does this but he only did it a couple times thankfully this is one of the few times you see it with Romero this annoying signature where there's a rapid use of the zoom lens where it kind of zooms in and out of the action really fast and it comes Back off be, yes. it comes off like you're watching a terrible shaky print that jumped at sprockets it's like who would do this, and why? Especially since you had just talked about how he was very respected in his country, he won all the awards. Why the fuck would you do something so juvenile? It's horrible. I think he's trying to show like, oh look, here's the scary part or whatever, but please, it's just, it's really hard to watch those sequences. This time there's some doofy Christian Slater type who's the captain, bringing yet another blowsy blonde, this time the daughter of an old drunk on the island, and government investigator John Ashley to look into a case of crazed natives with green blood. There seems to be a lot of the same Cast in very similar roles and using the same house and locations, though you know this time maybe the baddies are friendly or vice versa. This time, the sleazy Filipino lead has a queasy thing going on with his mother. Ugh. They even frame some loaded flirtation with a hot-to-trot native girl so that she's doubling the mother, and she's kind of standing behind the mothers and foremost in the frame. edible much? Uh, <laughs> the mad doctor running the mansion is more of a Jim Jones lookalike this time. Ashley gets more to do than just stand around gawking while the action takes place, and most of the raging hormones actually heal from the Filipinas. The blonde, alleged future porn star Angelique Pettijon, veers between perpetually pissed off and major depressive. Another fully closed humpathon takes place. One of the natives quote goes green in a literal sense. The non-incestuous love interest for our Filipino lead turns out to be a vindictive zombie-controlling bitch, and our frigid heroine lets rockabilly boy copa feel before the Denau Mont that feels like it was lifted straight out of a Santo film. While hardly the weakest of the three films, it's still a big drop in quality from its predecessor. I have to say that. I love
1: this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there, there's a quote. I love this movie. <laughs> I, I always loved this movie. It's so fucking insane. I I wish I kept a poster from this. I I, I had a flood, gosh, when I lived in Brooklyn. and uh, Well, you never know floods are going to happen. That's the thing. You know? My yeah. landlady upstairs or downstairs, the fucking pipes burst. I came home, and there was inches of water in my apartment. I kid you not. It was a ground floor apartment, and I was like, "Oh my god, my posters!" I'm like, "Oh jeez." I love this movie. And I, I, okay, so <sighs> it's it's a t- ter-
0: t- testosterone-powered movie. It's yes. like you've got the they repeat the exploitative elements of the last film, but ramp them up. Yeah, down? they ramp them up. Yeah, yeah.
1: Doctor uh, Locker, Ronald Remy
0: uh, another handsome, you
1: know, Filipino mature leading man. Uh, Playing the villain here. Alicia Alonzo, another looker, plays Maula, Filipino actress. Well, <laughs> Angelique Pettyjohn. Now, Angelique Pettyjohn, prior to this film, which was 1969, I know she's in a Star Trek episode. Gamesters of Triskelion. Yeah. And, yeah, why would I know that? Because I know too much. <laughs> she was in that. She was the saber, it was like part saber, part scythe wielding chick with. Like this cross-banded thing Obscuring her boobs And she had a harsh look And she does so in this picture Which is like uh, two years later After Mm -hmm. her Star Trek appearance And she did do Porn later on She was in Titillation You guys want to see the Vinegar Syndrome print of that She's in that The excellent and uh, far underrated Body Talk with Kay Parker Where Angelique plays a woman dying of cancer, which is like really, it was like one of those really good adult films that had a story back in the day. Unfortunately, Angelique also, toward the end of her career in adult cinema, wound up doing very strange movies like Starlock 69, which I didn't even know she was in and watching this. Ilsa Copy, thank God it wasn't as repulsive as Ilsa Films. Yeah. Like, I can't stand those things. And I saw them in theaters, but there she is and doing everything. So, um, so backtracking a little bit, Angelique kind of looked long in the tooth here. She looked hot, and there's a scene toward the end of the movie where she's running, rolling around on the grass with John Ashley. It looks like it may have been a savable edit from look like something that may have went too far. I'm not quite sure. You know that scene I'm talking about? No,
0: but there's a lot of choppiness in there, so it's possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're rolling around in the grass. It's like a, a lovemaking scene. Oh, uh, that one.
0: Okay, yes. Yeah, it's a bit <laughs> disjointed. It's cut
1: really weird. And it's, all of a sudden, it looks like it's getting more heated than we are seeing. And then it ends. So I, I just wonder <laughs> if that's all I could salvage. uh <laughs> So, the chlorophyll monster... So, okay, let's get okay. Dr. Lorca here is doing uh, experiments. Don Ramon is like the village patriarch. And what kind of experiments is Dr. Lorca doing? He's alleging he's doing experiments on cancer survivors or those afflicted with cancer. But what he's really doing is injecting green chlorophyll shit, God knows <laughs> from where, into the natives and making them raging, body-dripping green blood-dripping monsters. It's weird. The, the, the sexuality is more ramped up with the with the Filipino-Filipinos. I always like this movie. It's just how far can you push exploitation from another country? I like John Ashley in this. He seemed a little bit more invested in this one this time around. For some reason, Hemisphere Pictures, uh, one of the distributors of this thing, and I guess also Sam Sherman, ever the low-rent Dave Freeman that he was, is trying to gimmick. Uh, a lot of Hemisphere Pictures had gimmicks. They had the packets of green blood, hence that prologue, which was done here in the U.S., That's stapled onto the movie in the beginning. Yeah, you know, with the, uh, the students, you know, the oath of green blood, you know, that ridiculous
0: thing. And you get have to recite it with them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw also mention on Wikipedia, the packets... Were unhealthy, right? It's a weird sentence. I don't think anybody tried to drink
0: that shit. It's Why so it's a film I love for completely cheesy reasons. <laughs> So, uh, next up, my weird Uncle Bob gave me a few trick $10 bills when I was a kid. You probably saw stuff like this. You know, it looks like folded up money, but it turns out to be an ad, usually for some bar or strip club or hookers or God knows what. And you find them all over the city and stuff like that. Right. These were different because they were for some midnight movie revival screening of the next film, informing my young self that more than $10 worth of entertainment awaits when you see Beast of Blood, complete with the graphic where the titular creature rips his own head off, a striking image that really makes no goddamn sense when you think about it. Why'd you rip your own head off? This time, the blonde, Celeste Yarnalo, the cheesy Elvis flick, Live a Little, Love a Little, is more trim, but has a serious case of PMS to go with that pointy chin. What a nasty bitch. Oh my god. Anyway, of course, like <laughs> our last film's heroine, she does warm up a bit to the perpetually lost-looking charms of John Ashley, yet again playing the same doctor, heading again back to investigate the return of the green-blooded men on the same blood island, with our heroine, a nosy reporter-photographer for the local paper who comes along for the scoop. The village has changed. His lady friend from the first film is now the chief. And there's a new Dr. Lorca who kidnaps a reporter heroine and keeps the severed head and body of one of the monster men in the basement. And the mansion is also now booby-trapped with trap doors that fall into live cobras. There's corpses rotting in the halls. It's kind of, uh, it's evocative, but strange another big step down though overall from Brides of Blood, and less atmospheric, honestly, than either of its two predecessors. At least it's mostly free of that zoom lens bullshit, and it's a lot more carefree about the TNA and horror scenes. There's one or two unnecessarily gruesome scenes aside, you know, spurting blood, a Night of the Bloody Apes-style surgery sequence, but otherwise, this could be Frankenstein Island with a touch of extra luridness. It's not a great film, but it's still watchable enough and it definitely has a few amusing, even quite lovable moments like that. Uh I I think per <laughs> I think it's a
1: come down from Man Doctor Blood Island. Yeah. Um we, we, we start off with the end of the first film with Don Ramon, aka the mo- the chlorophyll monster, attacking the, the, the ship and then the fire ignites and everybody dies. There's an explosion, including Angelique Petty which I think was a mistake. I think they should have carried her over to this picture. You know, regardless of her limitations uh, as an actress. Because John Ashley awakens in the hospital and goes back. You know, okay. In all the history of horror movies, sci fi movies, sequels, follow ups, why, especially the cannibal films, why would you fucking go back? If you (laughs) managed to. Yes, quote me again. Why would you. Fucking go back if you manage to escape with your life. Yes. Right. And your body is intact, not missing pieces. Why? Because <laughs> you're oh, idiot. Yeah. Sure. I'll lead you to the jungle where the cannibals ate my friends and fucked them with a stick. <laughs> or sure, I'll take you back to the Filipino jungle where a uh, body part-dripping chlorophyll monster is eating people. No. <laughs> And I'm not even drinking a lot so <laughs> I just, I'm being serious here You know how many How many stings It's just like Oh my god <laughs> Like I just watched Just a slight digression I just watched again for the umpteenth time last night uh, No a couple of minutes ago Vampire's Night Orgy Which is a really good movie Oh yeah, very atmospheric. You know, carload of people get stuck in the Carpathian Mountains or somewhere like that, and there's vampires and blah blah blah. Yeah, you know the story, folks. Yep. Jack Taylor shows up out of nowhere. They stay for like five days. Everybody gets killed except him and this chick by the end of the movie. I'm like, leave on day two. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you wake up and like, have you seen the truck driver? No, he's probably walking around the village. We all saw
0: him die. Maybe the bus driver stole the spark plugs or some shit, but still, come on.
1: But still, get get it going, you know? <laughs> Try to get out. Run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as an example. As an and they're
0: example. Were all asleep during the daytime, so why didn't you just leave then? I know, right?
1: Let's hike. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't that far. But then just a ridiculous... Speaking of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you spent 70 minutes with this. It's you know, still
0: atmospheric. It's still and you know, Code Red's version. Uh, you know, I had the Blu-ray also. Code Red. It's missing the nude sequence when uh, what's her name? The Polish girl that's all hot. Zary or What her name was. And Jack Taylor keeps peeping in on her room The first time he peeps on her She's wearing something diaphanous Just getting undressed But the second time In the version that I remember having on VHS She was butt naked And it was mm. nice No, nope, She got the freaking clothes print Again I only you people That put out Spanish horror films And give us the clothes print Fuck you Because nobody <laughs> else is going to go And invest the money To give us the real print We well, don't was want on, the clothes was, print
1: well, <laughs> It was on Amazon Prime uh, it, it was the, the naked girls version so uh but anyway, so John actually meets up with journalist the lightsome. That's being kind. Um <laughs> Celestia No, who was also in a, a Star Trek of note. Yes. Don't remember the episode of that Did one. Did she poke uh, out
0: Kirk's eye with her chin? <laughs> You know, I thought, I, Moon-faced, I obnoxious. Oh my God, wait, she's wait, horrible. Wait.
1: I, I interviewed Celeste a couple of did years you? ago. Okay. I did for, for one of my books, uh, maybe for two of my books.
0: How was she in person? Was she like her character on screen? Here, she's a bit something,
1: you know. And I follow her on Facebook, and she's had she's had a couple of cancers, so she's having a tough time. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. So I wish you all the best, Celeste. I do. I wish you all the best. She has some really good stories, though, about making these movies. She said they would drive. You know, they would stay in this hotel, whatever, campground, and the people are really nice, but they would drive for hours to get to the location. Mm -hmm. And it was so hot, and there was shit crawling in the woods, and, you all in the jungles, And there was a scene, she did a scene, but I think Vic Diaz is in this one. And she did a scene where somebody went to save her from a snake or something and wielding a machete, and they missed the mark. Yeah. So they got her on the shoulder. Yeah. They're, like, bandaging her up and, like, driving six hours to get to the hospital. It's like that kind of, like, when you make a picture here, man, (laughs) you're going, you're going, you're going for broke. Yeah, Celeste doesn't even have the... Bonvivantness of Beverly Hills or the Pentulus yes. of Angelique Pettijon. Yes. And you know, Angelique had a bit of something going on there, yeah, as an actress. Somnambulisticness. <laughs> well <laughs> I, sleepwalking. I just <laughs> thought she was better than Celeste. And Celeste yes. was
0: still because- she didn't Angelique was, like, major depressive or something. She's kind of moaning and groping and whatever. Whereas Celeste is like, like I said, she's horrible in this freaking movie. I mean, I don't really watch a lot of her stuff, so I can't comment there her normally, but going by this movie, what a bitch. Well, she <laughs> was that. much better in The Velvet Vampire. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Jeez, that was a long time ago. That's a Stephanie Rothman film. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah she's yeah. much... Much better than that. And That's true. There, there's a couple of things. Scorpio with Burt Lancaster. Yeah, yeah. I think she found her footing. You know, you got to remember, it. she did Elvis. She did Star Trek. So she's primarily, uh, uh, if I if I'm recalling correctly, primarily a TV actress. Yes. With a few feature films under her belt, and she goes there and she makes two or three pictures. She also did Eve, the female Tarzan picture, with Herbert Long.
0: Oh yeah, Abel Silvaggia or whatever. That, that's actually not bad.
1: Yeah, so she's she's learning. So yeah, I'll give her credit for that. But what we really want to see is some TNA what? <laughs> <laughs> Or something, therefore. <laughs> yeah. uh, Eddie Garcia is back as Dr. Locker, but he's yes. disfigured. Not another the same Dr. Locker's back. Was it the same guy? You look completely different to me. He like, no, he really... was disfigured because the first picture had the, the uh, near the ending, his his uh, lamp was on fire. So okay. he, had, he burned. Same guy. And Don Ramon's head is removed. He's talking to his head, isn't that? Yes, that's a. And that's a running gag, but it's
0: meant to be serious, like, why won't you talk to me? And it just looks and blinks. That was actually one of the best parts of the movie, was the stupid head. (laughs) That and the the mansion that was booby-trapped with the corpses in the hall and the the cobras in the basement or whatever the hell, the trap door. very, Very strange. Yeah, that's that one. (laughs) <laughs> so, There was a Sam Sherman-driven attempt, like you mentioned earlier, to create a Blood Island film here in the States with Al Adamson and without Ashley or any of the regulars called Brain of Blood, but it's obviously a completely different, even wholly unrelated animal. So we'll save that one for an Al Adamson show, which, by the way, I'd love to do at some point. The best of the Romero-Ashley films is sometimes lumped in with the Blood Island films, but it's actually something very different, namely *Beast of the Yellow Knight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a more metaphysical, even philosophical film about a killer on the run who in his most desperate hours confronted by the devil and has to make a choice he decides to go with the darkness consuming human flesh to seal the pact and winding up in an endless cycle of reincarnation of resurrection continually brought back I mean he actually talks to his coffin and he's like the coffin's talking back to the guy continually brought back to influence those he interacts with towards sin and evil but the love of one woman who's Mary Wilcox of psychic killer and love me deadly and her refusal to screw around on him despite his best efforts to push her in that direction causes him to find his humanity and attempt to break the circle to the expectedly melodramatic effect As As this cynical Ashley encounters one good Samaritan and decent steadfast soul after another, he finds himself increasingly torn both inside in terms of who he is and the path he wants to go down. And externally, as he involuntarily turns into an evil-looking beast, somewhat akin to what happens to the kid in Laser Blast, but in a far deeper, more meditative and melancholic milieu. Nice alliterations there, by the way. <laughs> Some of the best performances you are likely to see from both Ashley as the unfortunate soul in question. And Vic Diaz is a particularly sleazy Satan. This film can be taken as a straight horror film if you wish, but it's really kind of a meditation. It's more of a meditation on the choices we make and how they impact others good and evil, and any number of interrelated philosophical and metaphysical ideas, most especially the question of redemption and the understanding that even the worst among us can still change, given the right incentives and situation, if they come to the same existential crisis point and decide to make that metaphorical U-turn. It's a very good film, masquerading as a no-budget Filipino drive-in popcorn horror. Honestly, I simply love this film. Yeah,
1: you're right. This is. uh, I I would say it's... I would go as far as to say this is a... uh an underappreciated film because one of the problems, people have difficulty seeing this. For some reason, while the, the three, four, five, six pictures we just discussed seem to be getting periodic uh, release, VHS, DVD, I would love to see a Blu-ray, a man, Doctor, it's unlikely probably. This one has been harder to find. It had a very pronounced theatrical push. I remember that. There were a lot of what I would see a lot of movies around this time period, 71 in the theater, you saw this trailer a lot. Actually, a lot of the trailer compilations has this thing, Beast of the Yellow Night, 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 But it's been really hard to see, not on TV, probably because it does have lurid moments. And really, it doesn't have much of a DVD release. Fred Olen Ray's Richard Media driving theater pictures, whatever you call it, put this out i don't think sherman did on his label very strange yeah ashley's really good in this and vic Diaz is really good but see okay why metaphysical you have this guy who was in collusion with satan and has he's reincarnated reincarnates by the time we're actually meeting him it's uh the passage of John Ashley, whose name is whatever it is, he really loves his wife, sort of maybe, and but she sticks with him. You yes. know, you're right about that. And Vic Diaz is really good. It's it's a very strange movie. This is one of the uh, pictures that Corman's New World punched in some money for. Because apparently Hemisphere Pictures had a problem with this. Somebody was ill. I see this on the internet, and um, Eddie Romero suggested to Ashley they try to co-finance the picture, which they did, but they needed more money so Roger Corman kicked in some. So why did this not end up as a New World picture? Or if it did, why did it not end up in any of the New World re-releasing things down the road? The majority of our cast here is Filipino. Except for our two leads, essentially Ashley and Mary Wilcox from that really strange Love Me Deadly. An
0: unusual film of one I think one both of us think you guys should check out. Definitely. So on the other hand, almost unwatchable is The Twilight People, another Ashley vehicle that crosses the Doctor Moroche dick with Nazi Eugenics, adds a semi-attractive daughter mm-hmm. as a love interest, stunt cast Pam Greer in a monster makeup bit part. And uses some of the cheapest sets ever seen on screen to represent the Mad Doctor's castle. I'm not lying to you, I thought the film was over at the 30 minute mark. It drags out that fucking much. Boring as shit, ugly looking and derivative at best. You've seen better takes on the material in Santo films or in episodes of Fantasy Island. Screw this shit. Absolute trash in every respect. This film just simply sucks. Well, surprisingly, well, well, maybe not surprisingly, Eddie
1: Romero never really liked this movie, but Ashley did, because it wound up for a brief period performing pretty well for the Dimension Pictures, uh, which was, uh, what was his name? Lawrence Woolner came out of nowhere, and he briefly partnered with Roger Corman, who already had New World and AIP. And they, they came up with Dimension Pictures. And for a while, Dimension Pictures was handling this kind of this kind of product. This was another one with a ubiquitous trailer presence. I never saw this in the theater. It didn't play long. And it was on more trailer compilations in the early 80s. Remember those days when they started showing up? Trailer compilations, yep. like from bootleg companies? Yep. And it was like, I never saw that. I never saw that. And then I finally saw it, and I was like, ugh. Oh. I wish I didn't see it. <laughs> eh, maybe not go that far, but it's it's just like, wow, it's not very good. Charles McCauley is our de facto Dr. Moreau in this umpteenth remake of Island of Dr. Moreau. And Charles McCauley played Dracula in Blackula, remember? That's
0: right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Poor old Mama yeah. Walder. <laughs> I'll call you Blackula. Okay. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. One, one of the great, like, early... I wonder why Black was pissed.
0: Um, he was. He was like a racist Dracula.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he was a racist Dracula. Yeah. Uh, uh, this film seems to be cast with Pat Woodell. Who the fuck was that? Uh, <laughs> she, she's like in a lot of women in prison films. Yeah, from one of the women in prison films. It's very strange. This one. She's like one of the people that kidnaps John Ashley, and then she changes her mind. Like, oh, I think I like him. So, yeah don't experiment and turn him into a manimal. Um, <laughs> it, it's I think the scripting was I don't know, something got lost along the way. But what I would say is that a lot of them, the major speaking roles, were either done by expats or like Pam Greer was already. She already did a, a women in prison film for Eddie over there. I think it was Black Woman, uh, Black Mama, White Mama, and right. she did quite a few women in prison films uh, over there. Yeah, the cage made, and the woman hunt, shit like that. The and arena. I, I, Mm -hmm. I think she did this as a favor. We thought she was a star, is one of the things. But she wasn't. No, she's barely in it. She's barely in it. I don't know. It's it's, it's one of those movies that leaves a bit of a weird taste in your mouth. All these Dr. Moreau films do, because none of them ever end, well, neither did the book. (laughs) None of them ever end appreciatively in in a manner where you're like, it was a nice theory, They're all tidied up. It's another one of these fucking downer movies. you
0: know. I, I like the original with Charles Lawton and Bill Lugosi and that hot girl playing the Panther girl. Uh, oh, it was good. No, it yeah, was good. And it probably stands stands time that it's one of the better ones. The, the Richard Basehart, Michael York one is not all that bad. It's either. not that bad. That was my second. Yeah, that was actually the original one that I had seen as a child because it was on TV. Mm. But it's not even close to the original. But compared to all the other ones they made... You know, people underrate it. People are like, oh, yeah, that one's not so great. No, it's the second best one made, but that's not saying we near the original. And the oh, other one is just then, abysmal.
1: Then we have the Frankenheimer one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <God>. <laughs> that one in 91 with uh, Brando in it? Ooh, and
1: Val <laughs> and Coomer. <Valcumber> and <sighs> oh, how not uh, to do drugs when you're making a movie with... You think the, the Twilight
0: guy. people's bad people? <laughs> anyway. Ooh, very So a much better affair, at least comparatively, from about the same time was Beyond Atlantis, which features Sid Haig as a pimp drug dealer and local crime lord who cuts a deal with a visibly aging, pudgy-faced John Ashley with a terrible meatloaf head haircut to (laughs) die for pearls, each one worth a thousand pesos, he excitedly exclaims, which I think even in 1980 when this was made meant about one cent. After a military raid at the local gambling hall. Ashley makes contact with an anthropologist who calls himself a doctor who's looking for the lost tribe of Atlantis and inveigles her way up to the expedition by threatening to grass on their pearl dive. A few Romero regulars show up, inclusive of but not limited to the ubiquitous Vic Diaz. There's a lot of nice underwater photography and a bit of action, heist film style ambiance when Sid and company move in on a local village, only for the man himself to fall into a pit full of pissed off crabs and wind up screaming like a little girl when they pull him out. Unfortunately, things slow down dramatically from here on out as the discover the atlanteans all too easily and things turn soapy with our anthropologist inquiries angrily rebuffed in the fair enough for a 70s blonde lay christian being pushed to meet with the outsiders for the survival of our race most of whom otherwise are ping-pong ball-eyed afro types starts off promising but dies an early death Ah, oh, you didn't name check somebody okay who you got jerry cotton <laughs> jerry cotton was in this one really who was he He's the fucking king. George Nader was the oh king of my Atlantis. People, God. Wait, was he
1: grade really badly? I didn't even recognize him. Yeah, uh, visibly older. This is nineteen uh, seventy-six, here. seventy-eight, something around there. Visibly older. George Nader is the uh, son of a bitch. King, king of the uh, Atlantides. And and we did a whole uh,
0: show on him, people. Jerry Cotton films George Nader. Wow. Yeah,
1: excellent show, by the way. One of our best. Yeah, I you know, it's a film I wanted to see for many, many, many years, and I finally did. I was like, "You gotta be fucking kidding me!" Oh, I'm serious. 1973. I was totally wrong. Yeah, 73. So it's not that (laughs) far removed. Yeah, it's like three years after the last Jerry Cotton picture, which was the hell happened to
0: him? Yeah, (laughs) he visibly
1: aged. I I really don't know what the story was, but George didn't look so great in this. It's a small minor role, but. It's sort of like uh, uh, how am I gonna say this? It's sort of like, hey, I got an idea. Yeah, we haven't done one of those for a while, but nobody remembered that the the George Powell one sucked too. So, but here yeah, we we had the heist thing, and we still I have
0: uh, In a way, might have inspired not only uh, the Bermuda Triangle that Renee Cardona Jr. film. Mm. but there was another one that was similar to this that I ran through my head and ran out if I remember it again I'll say it oh I think it was the movie Andres Garcia remember that yes oh I yeah, know what it was, was the I... Man from Atlantis I was thinking that stupid movie and TV series with uh, Patrick Wayne I get no Patrick yeah, impression no that this was.
1: Patrick somebody
0: was it Wayne Yeah. I thought it was Patrick Wayne yeah but I get the impression this may have been an inspiration on it, believe it or not but you know like I said it starts off and it's like okay this isn't so bad and you're enjoying it for the first half hour or so and then all of a sudden it's like Wait a minute, that's it? They just found the tribe, no problems, and nothing's going to happen from here on out. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, here's, here's the issue
1: here. Doing what they used to call back in the day, boys' own yes. adventure titles. Yeah, was sort of like the things you would find in Boys' Life Digest. It was like a sort of... Treasure Island kind of stuff. stuff you boys' guts. Yeah. You know, like Doc Savage, Light, that kind of stuff. Yes. You know? Some of those adventure tales were not so bad. Yeah, I'm not liking that thing. But they try to do this thing, and one of the few, one of the few, I believe, we did a show on this, which were, were those amicus things with Doug McCullough? Oh yes, yes, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 those
0: actually succeeded. For the most He's part, half-ass. H. Rider Haggard meets who's the fellow that did uh, Dejah Thoris and John Carter? Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm. They're kind of playing off of that thing, and then throwing like you know Treasure Island, Captain Kidd, and all those kind of things. Even maybe even Tom Sawyer, if you want to push it. And that's kind of what Boyzone was. I don't know if it was a British magazine or if it was over here, but if you say a boyzone type film, most people of a certain age know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's what it was. You know, uh discovering mysteries and the lost whatever the hell Sargasso Sea. There you go. Like well, it. Indiana Jones kind of thing. Yes. That
1: that kind of feeling. And I think this just probably started out in embryonic stages like that kind of thing. And then it just went. Fuck. (laughs) That shit. (laughs) That shit crazy.
0: So, from here, he starts working on a bunch of women in prison jobs for Roger Corman, like White Mama, Black Mama, which he mentioned earlier, with Pam Greer and Margaret Markov pulling a 70s distaff take on the Defiant Ones, mm. handcuffed together and trying to escape their island prison while getting tangled up with Markov's revolutionary buddies. It's fair, but unspectacular, except as an early top pulling role for Pam Greer. And as I recall, Sid Hague and Vic Diaz try to out each other. And just on the same note, later he does Savage Sisters with Black Belt Jones' Gloria Hendry and Hard-Bitten Ginger star Sherry Cafaro, this time with Sid Haig a poncho-sporting, bearded caricature of a Mexican bandito, John Ashley in a cheesy mustache, straw hat, porn star polyester disco shirt, and club med medallion, and Vic Diaz as an eye patch wearing Gunsel and partner to Haig. That one's played more for comedy, which just makes it annoying.
1: Well, I did want to pop in here and say, by this time, early... Pushing to the mid-70s, as we're making these uh, women in prison films over here in the Philippines with these people that you mentioned, John Ashley is suddenly not afraid to play against type, playing villains, pricks, and bastards. None the more so (laughs) than in a seldom seen, but really pretty damn good Robert Conrad picture anybody made.
0: Yeah, I was going to mention that one next. I didn't want to jump three films on you before you can comment, but finally, I'll do that right now, he does a Robert Conrad flick, Sudden Death, which was recently enough, paired on DVD with uh, the dull, live a little steal a lot. Hmm. But, honestly, it didn't really make that much of an impression on me, despite game show regular and annoying Magnum P.I. co-star Larry Minetti being in it. I tried to find the disc to review it for the show, and I just couldn't. It's been buried out of sheer disinterest after my original <laughs> viewing a couple years back. So, there you go. So you got three films if you want to mention. Uh, White Mama, Black Mama, Savage Sisters, and Sudden Death.
1: Uh, okay. Let me catch up. Oh, wait He's grabbing his notes. He's <laughs> grabbing his notes in real time. Wow. Uh, Where are your notes? Right here. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Take a break. Where are you? <laughs> yeah,
0: I figure you're grabbing something.
1: No, it was like that was like um, a Chiller announced from The Sopranos, and people got mad at me. and said, "Who the fuck is that?" <laughs> and most of those guys are dead already. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna love me there. What Emily do, please don't make me do another hammer. Yeah. yeah, I've done about four of those. But I guess, the, you know, there's like two of them left now, so I might as well, right? Yeah, sure. I, th- I did one, there were like seven.
0: Three, four... I mean, my walls are like the walls of the dead here. I've got all these autographed photos of these people that I met at conventions. Like, nope, nah, that one's dead, that one's dead, that one's dead, that one's dead, that one's dead. And just every year or two goes by, and it's like, more of them are dead. i like, okay. Although this might
1: be a show, I might see you, I think.
0: Maybe so, depending on who he announces. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah. at that. Oh, well, like, yeah,
1: Capisti, too, now. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: That's a nice one. I was like, like her.
1: I think he's leaning towards Suave, but you didn't quote me on that. But by the time it's here, as we'll know. Okay. All right. So, these women in prison films, Jack Hill pretty much started off the trend and uh, working for Corman. And then I think Jack Hill is an alter. I mean, he started out with. Like, sh- <laughs> what was that damn thing? With. With Lon Chaney and Carradine what was that? Help me out. Oh, it's uh, *House of Dracula*. That kind of Oh, no, spider, *Spider Baby*. Oh, right. *Spider Baby*. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. That was his. You're right. <laughs> so Dracula started out with the. <laughs> I enjoyed that film. Unexplainable heart to defines *Spider Baby*, which yes. to this day huge cult following. How do I personally feel about it? I not thrilled with it. I will acknowledge its presence in the pantheon of genres. And how about that? So Jack Hill did a lot of these in the Philippines, a lot of these uh, in a brief period of time. Women in prison films. You know, you think Jess Franco kicked off the genre? No, he got it from Jack, and then he got it from Eddie, and then Jess succeeded everybody by amping up the sleeves So that you get to the point where Jack Hill's stories for these women in prison films are used by Eddie Romero because, like Jack's, like, I don't want to make any more of these. I don't blame. <laughs> Ken Metcalf. Who, who I we haven't mentioned before is an expat living there. I think he's still around. I think he's still there. If, you know, hopefully, I haven't misspoke and he's not passed on. It's one of these guys that's almost in every one of these fucking movies. Like the big, tall, broad-shoulder white dude. Doesn't have a big part, but if they need an additional white actor, he's in it. This is going to be a long show, but we're trying our best. <laughs> anyway, so this is... <sighs> Black Mama, White Mama, The Woman Hunt, Savage Sisters, they're all a part of a piece. They're all yeah. a part of. Black Mama, White Mama is probably the better. Yes, because definitely. Because you mentioned the Defiant Ones. They were going for a Defiant Ones kind of feel. Of course, Pam has yet to do her Queen of Black Exploitation stuff yet. Yeah, over here, with those Arthur Marks movies, uh, yes. which I think we covered, didn't we? Didn't we?
0: So no, we actually... Well, well okay, we did the exploitation show, we covered them, yes. Yes, there we It wasn't did. like a special focus on her, but yeah. Yeah,
1: it's it's hard, because you, you get a, a sort of sameness after a while, but it's something to consider one day, maybe. Exactly. Pam's initial career was just playing big afro. Yeah, we didn't really take a note of her bodily, because she was like a tough chick. Right and, and and you know oh, I would say we didn't look at her in a sexy manner cause she was a tough chick and in a lot of these pictures either chained to white woman Margaret Markov, whatever happened to her and eventually Pat Waddell mm-hmm. you know, and then by Savage Sisters Pam's not in this one, but Gloria Hendry, former Bond chick, live and let die Cherry Cafaro from Ginger, Rosanna Ortiz who was a Filipina but yeah, we're playing in Chinese, Ma <laughs> Well, we wanted to sell these things internationally, didn't we? And Savage Sisters was one of the last of the uh, pictures that uh, John Ashley worked on with Eddie Romero. I guess they can only milk it for so much. This one's a little, I, I thought, out of all those pictures, this one's really, to me, interesting. Vic Diaz's is this. Eddie Garcia. Dr. Logger back. They like to cannibalize their. Uh, they're uh, casting call there. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing with this one. It's built as a women in prison film, but it's not really. It was built as a, a female revolutionary film, but not really. It's almost like a martial arts picture. Ebony, Ivy, and Jade is one of its other titles. Yes, I remember that one. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, by, I think at the time it was it hit America, it was maybe 75, in the brief time after Bruce Lee died, there were quazillion kung fu movies. Well also there were quasillion women in prison films. Mm-hmm. So a film featuring females doing martial arts, but this primarily was was changing the marketing to become something else. I think this did not do well. Savage Sisters is one of those movies that just did not do well theatrically. Or even VHS. I believe it has a multitude of titles because they don't know how to market this thing. It's about a police woman chasing somebody. Blah blah blah. John Ashley plays one of his later period trick roles, but she started to excel at. <laughs> uh, you wanted me to mention sudden death, right? Yes. Yeah, and sudden death. Now Robert Conrad, we all remember from the Wild, wild West. You know, short. What was he? Five two, five four. Uh, yeah. Very athletic. Uh, it, you know it's a great show season one to one and a half' it's fucking fantastic fantasy stuff I think Robert Conrad was like amazing amazing athletic persona just some of those shows are so weird we kind of forget how odd that show was I like the midget Mad doctor that was their nemesis michaelito Lovelace Michael Dunn yeah. yes they did a third season and Ross Martin. Uh, Conrad's
0: uh, so Artemis yeah, yeah Artemis
1: Pyle yeah. Ross had a heart attack so he yes. replaced him with Saul Zayden for a while then Ross came back which was nice um, but the show never kind of regained recovered. yeah, yeah. never kind of recovered. and by the end of the run maybe season 4 if I'm not wrong I don't, don't so. know if it went season 5 it got very campy much like the original Man from Uncle yes which started off okay
0: found a footing and then by the end, it was ridiculous. It can't be. The pilot was strangely serious. I mean, you had a William Marshall in that thing as the bad guy. I'm like, okay, this is odd. I wasn't expecting this. And then all of a sudden, it, like you said, it gets really campy and it's unwatchable almost. Yeah,
1: true, true, true indeed. So, Robert Conrad, after uh, Wild Wild West goes off the air, were we looking at, 69 maybe, 70 around there? Yeah, somewhere around there. He flounders for a while, and... There's a couple of roles in a few films, but he's never quite... He gets to bang, Angie Dickinson, and... Uh, <laughs> what was that really not bad Roger Cullen picture? Uh, Big Bad Mama, I think. Big Bad Mama, yeah. I thought that was Shatner that was doing it there, but... Oh, maybe it's Big Bad Mama, too. It doesn't matter. D- these are two different guys. There's no way to confuse Shatner or Rob Conrad. <laughs> anyway, Sudden Death, directed by Eddie Romero, filmed in the Philippines. Filmed in the Philippines. Well, forgive me. Has everybody Eddie's worked with before... Eddie Garcia's back. Larry Manetti. Hey, your favorite. (laughs) Uh, Johnny (laughs) Ash? Don Stroud. Or should we say Don fucking Stroud, you know? I interviewed Don Stroud a couple years ago. What a character. Nice guy, but what a character. I wasn't even scared. He's an old man scaring me. Uh, (laughs) He is. He's a scary motherfucker. Anyway, so Robert Conrad plays mysterious ex-CIA guy who... Is asked by uh, Ken Metcalf, what is that name again? Expat American living in the Philippines, to look into a revenge for some deaths. You know, Robert's retired now, he doesn't want to really. Felton Perry, familiar face American TV black actor, is Robert's sidekick, and they, uh, they sort of don't want to get involved with anything. I guess they retired to like coasting. But then Ken Metcalf gets killed, and Robert's like, okay. Now Robert has a smoking Filipino girlfriend. And uh, an American daughter, go figure it out, probably from his own daughter. Actually, Nancy Conrad, his own daughter playing his daughter. And the movie then goes bug nuts fucking crazy. It goes way off the rails, which is why I liked it. Because things like this start cheesy and then just go insane. Don Stroud is like an Italian hitman hired by some guys. Who then starts offing everybody. By the end of the movie, everybody's dead but Robert Conrad. Like wow, you had the balls to kill his girlfriend off, his daughter off, his buddy off. It's a very strange beast of a picture, which is probably why a lot of people did not see it too much. Oddly enough, the picture you mentioned before, *Live a little, little*, *Love a, a little? little*, yeah, yeah, I actually got more promotion and more airplay, theatrical play, than this did. Uh, that was
0: uh, a really weird old surf- picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it was like the Murph the Surf thing,
0: remember? Oh, oh, you mean Live a Little Steal a Lot, that one. Yeah. That one, sorry, sorry. That was Murph the Surf, you're correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, sorry, I, I misquoted. It. All these movies, I can remember. <laughs> so,
0: there was that. Now on to some other, often better Filipino horrors not directed by Eddie Romero. A great early Filipino horror directed by Newt Arnold, Bloodthirst is a film that feels more like a sober take on an Emilio Vieira film. It's not far removed from the deadly organ, if not curious, Dr. Hump. This is a less oversexed, brilliantly lit, black and white, neo-noir of a horror flick that comes off so slick and polished you'd think Orson Welles had a hand in it, at least visually. Vic Diaz is a local detective who calls in a Hugh Hefner lookalike named Robert Winston, an expert on sex crimes to solve a rash of murders of young women being drained of blood in Manila's nightclub district. His investigations run afoul of the local nightclub owner, the otherwise charming Vic Salion, and we soon discover the guy's practically a secret agent, complete with prepared dummies to foil assassination attempts, local undercover connections, and a fast trigger figure to go with all that suave and ruffled demeanor, bringing yet another unexpected element to the film, that of the Euro Spy film, or even the Eddie Constantine-style French crime flick, and obviously we did shows on both of those. There's a Shirley Eaton look-alike, and plenty of nightclub sequences bring in the early Jess Franco to mind. Vic Diaz gets plenty of screen time as a good guy for the change, and the villain is not who you think it is, altogether making this perhaps the best of all final penal horrors, certainly one that we, my wife and I, revisit on a regular basis. It's truly, surprisingly top-notch. So, do you remember this one?
1: Yeah, I do, I do, I do. Uh, it's uh, The lead actor is definitely different-looking, unusual-looking, kind of got that... I think I know why you like it because this actor we don't see too often, and he's sort of he has a noirish feel to it. The whole thing has that kind of crossover noirish feel. Not as enthralled with it as you are, but it's a, it's a nice early attempt to do something with that genre that's not the usual. Not as lured as the much later Blood Island pictures, and not as distasteful as it could be. But considering its
0: year of production, you know I thought it was actually seventy one or somewhere around that, which surprised me. It seems much earlier, but No, I think it's sixty six actually. Sixty six. Is it sixty seven, okay. yeah. Another one I always liked a lot, which is very seldom discussed and when it is they kinda of put it down, is Night Creature, also known as Out of the Darkness. Which puts Donald Pleasance together with Paul Queem, spokeswoman Ever wonder why Oriental women stay so young-looking? Uh, <laughs> Susie Wong herself Nancy That's Kwan cool. yeah. Together for this weird, atmospheric Sub-H Rider Haggard affair About a big game hunter With a stunningly exotic, palatial estate On a pagoda-filled jungle of an island in Thailand Stalking and being stalked by his Ahab-style nemesis, a black panther who embarrassed him by making him a coward for the first time in my life. Uh, This is Donald Pleasance talking, he's always a coward, but anyway. Uh, Unfortunately, his daughter and her friends dropped by for a friendly visit, which complicates matters and leaves too many easy targets for the deadly beast there's plenty of rain swept sequences set in semi-darkness over bamboo walkways and a definite sort of siege film old dark house vibe predominating in this sort of old man in the sea for the me generation you could point to its 70's tv movie feel but that's not really to the film's detriment it's a bit soporific but it's simply dripping with atmosphere I had not seen this for a long time and then when I
1: finally did I wasn't overwhelmed with it He's flaws. his flaws it has his, Okay, it has his flaws It has a certain level of cheesiness Nancy Kwan <laughs> I never know what to make of her Then there was Wonder Woman
0: <laughs> We'll get to that one in a minute
1: Yeah, I, I, it's, I'm not a fan of this movie too much
0: Alright, so next And I really hate to give them the business Because obviously we are not partners anymore But uh, somebody is putting this out very soon Enough said this wasn't the first time that Kwan showed up in a Filipino chibi, because she was in the non-horror, but very cult exploitation style Wonder Woman a few years prior. Notable of late as a film whose theme song (laughs) Vinegar Syndrome lifted wholesale for their DVD bumpers. This is a Sumeru film in all but name very much along the lines of Franco's first Fu Manchu film Kiss and Kill or more to the point the two Sumeru films that Harry Allen Towers produced one of which was Franco's Girl from Rio. Quan is a mad scientist who sends an all-female team of varying hair color and race out on missions to kidnap athletes Super Argo style to steal their organs to sell the rich men to prolong their lives. Ross Hagen of the aforementioned Night Creature, and apparently the scriptwriter of the fun John Saxon Rosie Greer black spoiler, The Glove, whose own theme song is pretty damn hilarious and overwrought. I actually recorded that off the TV, and i have it on a CD i burn somewhere that i play once in a while. <laughs> You'll never escape from the kiss and rape of The Glove! Oh my god, it's unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, he produces and therefore buys himself a starring role. But Hagen's pretty much cardboard, not to mention one of the ugliest son of a bitches ever to take the leading role in a major motion picture. You're here for the funky music, the generally pretty girls, the manila scenery, and the ridiculous jitney chase with Cabby Vic Diaz and Hot Pursuit of the Ladies in Question. It's all pretty low rent, somewhere between one of those Al Adams and John Carradine mad scientist jobs and The Frozen Dead. But all those reference points should imply, it's loads of cheesy fun. And Sid Haig even shows up briefly in full John Pertwee, Dr. Crushed Velvet, and Flourishes new romantic regalia.
1: It's a, it's a strange beast, this picture. In, in a way, it reminds you of that movie with, similar movie with, is that Death Machines? No, it's not Death Machines. Yeah, maybe it's just Death Machines. What, the, the, the three super athletes that go out and kidnap other super athletes? Yep. Yeah, Very similar to that one This one You know what's weird But this one It doesn't have a strong TNA factor No Which is weird Which it's is true. weird Yeah Considering It's its Ilk And its, it's Audience Which is probably Why it didn't do that Tremendous business This was a movie You would see In those Donald C. Willis Guide to Fantastic Cinema It's like a movie You read about Before you could see For years and years Okay and then when it finally became available, you're like, is this all there is? Nancy Kwan is like beyond slumming at this point. You know, for someone who yes. has such a
0: uh, a really good pedigree up to this point, hey, everybody got to eat. It's. Look, it's still better than doing pro-cream commercials and selling yourself for being Oriental. Did <laughs> she do that? Yes! That's why I was doing that voice. Oh, was, it was a commercial, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all through the 80s and 90s. You see it on syndicated TV. It was embarrassing. Um. Okay. (laughs) One that's no fun whatsoever, though. What do you get if you take H. Rider Haggard she, remove all the good writing and jungle adventure bits, gender swap Aisha and Calicrates, and make it a soapy melodrama with a bunch of bickering yentas and wimpy Greek guys in dresses? The Thirsty Dead has always been a real letdown of a film. From the first time I ran across it on syndicated TV back in the late 70s or early 80s, through a VHS rental in the 90s, to a more recent pairing with a far more likable, amusing, and occasionally atmospheric, if disjointed to incomprehensible, Spanish horror Swamp of the Ravens. But this film just blows. Despite one or two lookers among the hookers who get kidnapped to serve as blood donors for yet another cult of Atlanteans or whatever, who live forever thereby, somewhere between She and Lost Horizon, without any of the merits of either, avoided all costs. Which one was this?
1: Oh, Thirsty Dead? This is the one with John Considine and Jennifer Billingsley? Yes. It's so weird cheesy. It's a, it's color photography is really nice. I've always said that about it. Um uh, <laughs>
0: if you have to bring that up, it says a lot right away <laughs> Yeah, exactly
1: That's has really good color photography um, mm-hmm. John Constantine, never really a warm actor he, he, He's familiar, you would see his face familiar in more TV supporting roles TV guest spots, especially in the 70s than you would in feature films He did about two or three of these type of things, more often than not playing this kind of role. And I have to agree that the previous film we discussed is a lot better than this one.
0: So along similar lines to Wonder Woman comes They call her Cleopatra Wong Which kicked off a three film collaboration Between cute starlet Marie Lee And director Bobby Suarez featuring Mm -hmm. the same character Mm -hmm. An Interpol spy sort of akin to a kung fu female James Bond This film may or may not also have kicked off Several Dick Randall, Bruce-ploitation spy efforts Featuring Bruce Leigh and Richard Harrison And if memory serves Maybe one or two of Harrison's solo works as well And I gotta say again One of these days I'd really want to talk Dick Randall productions I love that guy Anyway, the film revolves around counterfeit money being produced at a local convent, which means that our not-so-high-kicking, motorcycle-riding heroine has to gather a team of male agents to dress up in drag as nuns and storm the strangely fortress-like convent. Well, it's sort of a cross between a school and a boarding house, but with all those gated metal doors and such like, and pretty much kill off everyone to save the value of Filipino money so Imelda Marcos can buy herself another closet full of shoes. It's loads of fun, though I can't really say as much for its sequel The Devil's 3, which involves a crime lord who enlists Cleo and her pals, which are a fat girl and a flaming queen, to get his daughter back from kidnappers. It's played for last and came out through Code Red around the same time they're releasing stuff for that guy's head in the toilet for the bumpers like the Unknown Comic and King Frat, which, honestly, I should say it all right there. There was one more sequel The Bionic Boy, but I've never seen that one, and i got to say the descriptions don't exactly sound all that appealing, so I don't care if I ever do. <laughs> so what's your take on those films?
1: The first Cleopatra Wong, I know Morriga as a friend, uh, I interviewed her. One of the first people I interviewed for one of my books years ago. Nice lady. She was a young actress. She had appeared yes. in a few things. Uh, let this be known. Uh, people don't know. She had already appeared in a couple of films. It was the first Filipino production she appeared in. Bobby Suarez was already making movies. And so, yeah, she's the female James Bond. She knew some moves, but they taught her. As we went along, (laughs) and that's the whole thing with Filipino production, you know. Basically, there was two or three, sort of like Sonny Chiba, sort of like other uh, Jackie Chan's group of guys. There were two or three in the Philippines uh, groups of stuntmen. There were stuntmen supporting actors, and they just really knew this shit, and some of it was very dangerous. And so, if these guys were associated with your picture, they would help you. They would teach you. Okay, you're going to jump in the third floor window. Here's how you do it. So, you learned on the job. And I think for uh, a lot of Marie's early pictures, uh, especially the three with Bobby Sabarez, so she learned on the job. <laughs> she was imposing, and she, uh statuesque, and she um, she did a hell of a good job in this picture. I, it's, it's fun. It's all over the place. They cut corners. But... Uh, I think it could have been bigger. I don't recall it being huge here. I think we saw more posters and, and maybe trailers than we saw the movie until we finally got to see the movie much later on in the 90s. I
0: think that was one of the ones that Tarantino championed, and that was one of the first cult films that we got there for. Again, I said it before, and I'll say it again. I'm not a big fan of Tarantino, but God bless him for bringing cult films to the popular consciousness and for basically motivating a hell of a lot of people to get these things out there on DVD and blue. Uh, And this was definitely one of those pictures. Well, Tarantino fucked me twice because I had gotten
1: in contact with Evelyn Craft from Goliathon. Remember that thing? Yes, I do. And Tarantino wanted to get in contact with her, so I gave him her information, and then they brought her to Malaysia, and they, then they re-released it on DVD in the early days. And I got nothing. And then Marie Lee, after I interviewed her and I was letting it known that she's in my book, and I got contacted by Tarantino's office. Oh, they want to get in touch with her. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't give out people's information. So I let her know. She got flown all around the world by Tarantino. Did did I get a fucking thank you? No. So, <laughs> I still like a few of his films.
0: Yeah, but, I'm not a fan of his films, but, but you
1: know. No, this so. is... Yeah, we were appreciating him for this thing that you said. But this
0: is what happens, though, when...
1: I learned my lesson.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Trust me, I've been seeing my stuff quoted in books and every other goddamn thing. But, you know, does anybody appreciate you? Have we wound up on a DVD commentary, anything? No. So uh, here's hoping that someday somebody will, but, you know, fuck you to all those who use and don't, you know. <laughs> if you don't, don't know what credit. you're
1: talking about and have a history of misidentifying actors, then you're all over the place. The other films you asked me about, The Devil's Three, the second picture, more comedic. And I really... I'm sure I asked her about that, and we talked about that. I really don't know if it was intended that way. I just don't recall. Yes, there was a transgender person and a heavyset woman who helped Marie find the baddies. Bionic boy was supposed to be Cleopatra Wong's nephew. And there was already a film featuring the young man Johnson Yap or Jackson Yap, maybe. Either one of the two, they're interchangeable. <laughs> It didn't work. And, and I think the first picture did okay business, and they wanted to team that character up with Cleopatra. And the weird thing is, I sort of like the $6 million man. If the first movie didn't do well, they made another one, and they rebooted it. So the, the second picture, the one with Cleopatra Wong, the kid loses everything again. He loses like, arms, legs, all kinds of shit. Yeah, so it's like a bionic boy. It was weird because it's half-played, it's a kiddie movie and have played as a drama-slash-action film. So, very, what do you make of this kind of thing. It didn't do well, I think, even for the followers of the young kid who had already one or two pictures in the can. And I think Marie kind of gave up, and she was supposed to work again with Bobby Suarez in the early 2000s for a vengeance of Cleopatra Wong. This is true. And this is post interviewing her, she was alluding to that in, gosh, 2000 they were working on this for years and then he took ill and then
0: passed away so it didn't happen. Similarly ridiculous, but far more entertaining and somewhat less directed at the Chinese slapstick sensibility, you know. Some of the more annoying kung fu film in 90s Hong Kong craze entries lean heavily on big-footed, weird-looking characters with odd voices and pratfalls to keep their audiences engaged. Stephen Chow's Shaolin Soccer stands yeah. out in their respect, casting Looker at the day's Shu Qi and making her up as unrecognizably ugly, like kind of like an olive-oiled cross with Oz Lagoon, or how one character gets a huge foot at one point when they get something dropped on it.
1: Did, That's you, wait, 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 did you say
0: Shu uh, Qi? was ugly in this oh. film yeah that's the point she was gorgeous and he made her look like a monster I was like, that's their idea of humor over there oh let's make her the ugly character And oh look here's a guy that gets, you know, kicks the ball and gets a big foot and He walks around with a giant foot oh, Really? Oh, I like Shukki oh so, sorry. oh yeah I love she was great but, anyway, less directed at that kind of sensibility is For Your Height Only, featuring the under-three-foot midget Wang Wang in a Don Johnson ice cream suit as a tiny James Bond. To be fair, there are a lot of cheap sight gags like Wang Wang biting a guy's ass during a fight or reaching up to hit him in the balls, hiding under the bed in really low bushes or just flying around in a jetpack Thunderball style. But this is another one like Cleopatra Wong or the Dick Randall Bruce Lay films that just needs to be seen to be believed. I think what makes it work is that the other actors are playing it straight as if they see pint-sized secret agents doing their thing every day, which of course makes it all the more absurd and hilarious for the viewer. Honestly, I enjoyed the hell out of this one personally. So,
1: how could you not like this movie? Um, uh,
0: Angel spent a lifetime
1: <laughs> trying to track down, and then he, only to find out he passed away. But he made it a great documentary, "The Search for Wang Wang, which I highly recommend. Yeah, how could you not like this film? It's yeah, you have to see it to believe it. I don't want to speak a little
0: bit, because what is there not to enjoy... And I really like how fast he is. It doesn't even feel like they're undercrank the film, but he's like shoots out of the, from under the bed or jumps off these walls. I'm like, how is this little guy doing all this crazy crap? I mean, maybe they were undercranking it. It's just not obvious. But it's like, wow, it's it's really funny. It's like you don't expect it. It's like when you got a cat in the room and all of a sudden, you're on one side of the room and all of a sudden they're next to you. Like, what the fuck? How'd you get there? Well, I saw, I saw the
1: documentary and uh, there's an extras disc and and last year Andrew wrote a book about all this stuff you read and see these things like the people who worked with Wang Wang made the films with him well explain he did anything you want him to do and then he learned it and then they were very impressed he, he was, was able to do some things
0: yeah it's a film you have to see to believe. So another good one I remember seeing on TV every so often back in the 80s is Daughters of Satan, where Magnum P.I. himself, Tom Selleck, steals water from a nearby reservoir. Oh, I'm sorry, that, that was later on. Uh, I mean, buys a portrait of his wife being burned at the stake from a Fu Manchu bearded devil sporting Vic Diaz and opens a whole big can of worms and a shitload of trouble for himself and his lady friend thereby. Apparently, she's actually the girl in the painting, reincarnated, a theme you'd see incessantly throughout 70s witchcraft and satanic cinema, especially in TV movies. Immediately, Mark of the Witch springs to mind, but there were dozens like this. And their acquisition of the artwork triggers other figures to mysteriously appear in their life and vanish from the painting one at a time. The dog, the housekeeper, even Tom turns out to be the center of the guy who burned the witches in the first place. Weird-looking Tani Guthrie, also the head cultist in The Thirsty Dead, turns up as the head of the coven, coming on to select something fierce, hoping he won't notice her strange horse teeth, heavily wrinkled forehead, oddly shaped face, or nasty cigarette lines all around her mouth. She sports the most ridiculous outfit this side of Samson vs. the Vampire Woman, or perhaps more to the point, models hands of fate. She initiates wifey into her coven of kinky satanic witches, and sends her home with the maid to dope him up, put him in his car on the edge of a cliff and stuff blocks of ice under the tires, so there's a big delay before they melt and the car goes off the edge. He still manages to escape and make it home, but then the last figure vanishes in the painting, and another. Another bleak 70s ending ensues. Even so, effective, moody, weird, and somewhat reminiscent of the earlier half of Baba's Lisa and the Devil. I always kind of liked this one. So, what's your take? I never really warmed to this movie. I saw it a number of times over the years. And um, it
1: always left me cold. And there, there were a couple of pictures from this, this time frame where movies were shot it was almost as if they were like... Intended for TV broadcasts or something, uh, the, the cinematography, yeah, the, feel. the feel, the performances, uh, but they were not, you know, because you know the addition of nudity or bloodletting, and or if we didn't go the full nude gamut, you know, we we did the amazing diaphanous gowns where you know well we might as well be nude with those things, but I never really liked this picture. I, I you do, that's good.
0: I didn't. Yeah, I never did. <laughs> So, one of the apparently rare Filipino Dr. Mauro Nakos not directed by or with the involvement of Eddie Romero is Super Beast, which features television bit player Antoinette Bauer as a doctor investigating the case of a half-human maniac who assaults people at an airport, and which was part of a double bill with the aforementioned Daughters of Satan during its original theatrical run. It turns out he was one of the patients being experimented on by yet another Moreau wannabe, played by none other than Jason of Star Command himself, Craig Littler, who comes off a fuck of a lot like the stiffer, slightly older Pat Cardy, who was Vernon Potter's or Twisted Brain or Horror High. He's got a place that's pretty inaccessible up in the treetops and mountains of the Philippine Jungle, but it's sort of like the Donald Pleasant's place in Night Creature, it doesn't seem like a bad place to live after all. Unfortunately for his experiments which are intended to lobotomize criminals a la Doc Savage's crime college, don't ask if you don't know. Stupid Antoinette decides to teach him a lesson by injecting his serum into his own food so that he becomes the half man half monster, allowing his sleazy big game hunter pal to play stalk and slash for a few minutes and winding up with a good doctor, cutting off his ties to civilization once and for all to live about his life as a freak. Great job, lady. Some heroin parts work, like the travelogue and location, which has sufficient atmosphere to carry the rest of the film, which is pretty damn slow, soapy, and boring. The funny thing about this movie is that uh, the trailers are really well cut. And I always thought it'd
1: be more lurid and sexier than it actually wound up being. They did a really good job of trying to sell this. They really did some cutting that was creative <laughs> for the for the trailers. <laughs> No, because, you know, I'm not... Folks, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you were seeing, like, a porno version of Super Beast. But what I'm saying is you they tried to get asses in the theater by cutting the trailer in a way that you were seeing this slightly attractive, bosomy woman who looked familiar because she was on TV stuff, but you weren't quite sure, seducing and drugging this guy who was going to go on a rampage of violence. Sort of like a... A more lurid, sexier version of Beast of the Yellow Knight, but not quite. And that's not what it was at all. So I think some audiences probably felt
0: cheated. I know I was. So one of the most long-awaited cult films of my childhood to finally make its way to DVD was the Roger Corman co-production *Night of the Cobra Woman*, a semi-black exploitation horror featuring Marlene Clark of *Ganja and Hess* and *Beware the Blob* fame, and pudgy-faced Joy Bang of *Messiah of Evil*. There's apparently some mythical cobra that grants eternal life but possesses your soul. In other words, it leaves the victim eternally horny. She literally needs to fuck to live. No! When Bang, horribly miscast as a herpetologist, comes to the Philippines in search of this mystical Cobra, her dorky boyfriend winds up the willing sex slave of Miss Clark's far more attractive snake woman and hanging around with her retarded son Vic Diaz who's got a bad case of droopy eye and wears those hillbilly teeth he get out of a gumball machine. Unfortunately for the poor schmuck, while Clark's pretty smoking, not only does she have a terrible perpetual case of sunburn with all that unsightly skin shedding, but she fills him with enough venom that his services are no longer good enough for her, and she needs to find a new boy toy while he mopes. Even an attempt to return to his former pudgy vow fails, and Clark totally abandons him when she goes full on snake, leaving the dope with nowhere else to turn. Happy ending aside, it's at least as good as sss, and probably a damn sight less melancholic, not to mention all the nudity from both starlets. It didn't live up to my childhood memories, no, but it's a pretty good watch for fans of the sort of movies we cover here.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, well I was just saying that the previous film Super Beast was not as lurid and sexy as you might have expected. This one actually is more lurid and sexy than the trailers ever gave a hint on, which was interesting. Like, you either market something one way or you market it the other way. So, you want to bring more people into the theater, because this is certainly that time period, then do it right. And so, this was a movie that made it look a little bit more chaste than it actually was. And I think people enjoyed, oh, this is different. This is surprising. And this is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm liking this. Yeah. You know? So. <laughs> I guess it's a lesson learned in how to cut a trailer, (laughs) how to to market a movie, (laughs) you know. I I know I read something, I cannot recall who it was exactly, uh, something about some uh, distributors, producers. Maybe it was a little later on, mid to late 80s, when they knew something wasn't working. They'd pull it back, retitle it, cut the trailer entirely different, put it back out, helping to get people going, wow, I'll go see that, you know. So uh,
0: I I guess at this point in time That wasn't happening so much Finally Probably my all time favorite Filipino horror Is The Bizarre Mm -hmm. Killing of Satan A film I kept passing up In its big box VHS incarnation Back in the rental store days Only to discover it When it hit semi-gray market Retail DVD A decade or more thereafter An ex-con Who turns out to be Kind of an upstanding guy Despite that Comes home to his impoverished village Facing off with old rivals Who want him dead And taking up the mantle Of the village's Spiritual protector When his uncle slash mentor Dies to keep a Disco leotard sport Satan at bay. As you can probably figure out, it's sort of a rural Filipino Doctor Strange, complete with watery zombie attacks, weird bullet deflecting effects, miraculous healings, our hero slapping a cobra and tying it into a knot, weird naked demonic midget attacks. Fully naked Filipinas in a cage. Rivers turned to blood. People who spin like a top and whose necks twist like Stretch Armstrong. Laser, blowtorch, lighting, and fireworks. Squib-based magic effects. Pretty girls who are actually transformed cats and dogs. And a bunch of circle of iron style tests on the path of mastery of magic and defeated the head baddie, who is actually referred to as the Prince of Magic. Though Old Scratch himself does show up looking exactly like Pitch from Santa Claus the Movie as said baddie's master. Later he turns into a fat guy in a Dracula costume. Don't ask. It's not as awesome and darkly nightmarish is the Indonesian Satan Slave which was also known as Pengabdi Satan or the awesome H. Tut Jalil trilogy but it's probably the second best oddball occult epic ever committed to celluloid and certainly the best one not healing from Indonesia who made something of a cottage industry out of this sort of thing oh it's a very very strange movie yeah uh well I'm gonna quote from
1: Noel Vera here with a Catholic majority of at least 85% Philippines is the largest predominantly Catholic country on earth so you got that. So with that being said, and we mentioned this earlier in the show, the whole schism of good versus evil is born out again and again in, you know, dramas, melodramas, romance. not so much the movies we covered up until this one, which takes place, as you said, in, you know, a rural area. So basically we have the chosen one who is like the village good guy. who's played by an actor, Ramon Ravilla, who has been working since the 50s. As a no, leading man, so by now he's much older, but I guess still selling tickets. And the effects are, for what they are, pretty much fun, except for the shooting lasers out of the hands and the eyes <laughs> part, which I could have done that. I thought that was funny. But uh, to begin any movie with the reenactment of the crucifixion, you know, like, your ass is in the seat. Very strange. It's The odd thing about it is that uh, I've never seen a really good print of this. Even on that big box label, VHS, from way back in the day. And I was always surprised years later when I did see it again, when I found out it was 1983. And I thought it was much, much later than that, which surprised me. For some reason, I just thought it was like a much older film.
0: Well, you get that with a lot of the Indonesian films, like the Barry Prima films and things like that, or Mister mm-hmm. Bali, Prima. you know, this kind of things. They actually hail from the early uh, 80s, but... One thing that is interesting is that our nudity is more explicit
1: in this film, and our gore more graphic when it happens. There's also male nudity in this, which I thought was interesting. Did it play there? You know, well, I don't know. Maybe to more rural areas, you know, hence, because it was, uh, enhancing that whole base family life, you know, religious schism against the darkness. Or did it not? Because it just went too far. I, I don't know. I can't answer that. But, Efron C. Pinon, who directed this movie, did do a number of films, like Jerry DeLeon and Eddie Romero, as we discussed earlier. So, uh, and like those guys, there's nothing in the CV to even suggest. Then you do something like this. Exactly. Yeah, you know, like Eddie Romero, you know, award-winning director, screenwriter. Then, hey, Doctor of Blood Island. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's just crazy, crazy. But this is certainly a very strange film. And, and well, folks, if you have not seen the Philippine... Killing of Satan. Nineteen eighty three film. Still out there. You go find it. I think we both highly recommend that you do. Yeah. So anything
0: you want to close out with about Eddie and Philippine horrors? Well I do want to say there's more out there, there's more we haven't covered. Oh, yeah. Uh let's put it this way. We right. could have gone into the eighties and started talking all these post apocalyptic things and these Vietnam. We could have done that. The drug We could we could've, we could've and, I, I
1: but you know and and and, and I I did make notes about Aswang, which is uh, a Filipino lore, bat creature. Or even Silip, which was really filthy, which is great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we could have gone on further with this, but let's call this a primer. And uh, we cover more older films, but, you know, if you out there don't know about it, you do now. And, you know, we talked about other things, not just, like, one type of film, so... Hope you enjoyed the show and thanks for listening.
0: Next week is. So, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Eddie Romero, Gerardo de Leon, and the horror of the Philippines. Next time. The show that launched not only a sequel a decade and a half on, but an equally popular movie series two full decades thereafter. The tropes and score of Mission Impossible have been used, yeah. referenced, and celebrated throughout popular culture well past any similar series' shelf life. Despite an odd insistence on avoidance of actual characterization or backstory, this unique spy come heist series went on to be nominated for it and win any number of awards throughout its run, including six to ten Emmy nominations a year for its original Landau Bane incarnation, and one to three gold and Globe Ones for an overlapping five of its seven remaining seasons, no mean feat for a low-to-middling budgeted mainly set-bound mid-60s television series. With a rotating cast centered on a few central figures, themselves often rotating in and out of the series over the course of its lengthy run, the series was later followed by not only a surprisingly good late-80s revival series with a nearly all-Australian cast and setting, and despite its partial direct remake of previous series scripts, featuring return appearances from several veterans of the 1966-73 forebear, but further by two of its leads entree into the pensive hard SF of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's UK-based Space 1999, which married the format of Star Trek with the aesthetic of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, before imploding following a major controversial overhaul in Season 2 that saw most of its core characters, themes, and tropes overturned, betraying nearly everything that made its first season so fascinatingly special. So join us as we discuss the long and winding fuse that ties these three series together. As we talk the good, the bad, and the ugly of both series of Mission Impossible and Space 1999. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds, Mission Impossible and Space 1999. So uh, if you'd like to join us here, uh, contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, you'd like to join us in here. Drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash scenes one or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at weirdscenes1. Weird scenes inside the gold mine. Brought to you by the wholly non-existent Big Papa Online Network. <laughs> Anything else you want to close out on? Or? No, no. Thank you, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. It's a wrap. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by board and committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider none of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days this is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world any of the hotbeds of obscure oddball or generally wild cinema available on dvd from the dawn of the medium to this very day join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on third eye cinema sundays at 7 p.m eastern 4 p.m pacific on the big papa online network on blog talk radio what is at eye level i reduct you out absurd and look at the headlines Politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about what. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G., and me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery we try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you only on the Big Poppa Network on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 630 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
1: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his Scarlet Women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? Why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover?
0: Join us for a dialogue between two long lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality the dark side and the light from the organized to the out of the way
1: this show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling
0: join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value and what inevitably fails in organized practice but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life
1: moving towards life Lessons in life and spirituality from an Unconventional Seeker.
0: Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network
1: on block Talk Radio.
0: Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell of Doc Savage,
1: Lois Hall, myself, discuss the beloved, the cave, the career, and the
0: wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soul-asleep derivative mire of our modern age.
1: Tune in. Turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine.
0: Only here on the Big Papa Online Network.
1: On Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Sorry, that was. (laughs) I hit the wrong (laughs) button. By the
0: way, you have officially graduated to a new ringtone on my phone, so every time you text me now, so I can distinguish you from everybody else, you get uh, tinkling ice in a glass. So. I thought that okay. was appropriate. And then uh, when my mother calls, I got like a circus thing with Greenland Brothers because she's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the tinkling eyes. All right, all right. So let's get rolling.